Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We are at a turning point. You often hear that line from US President Joe Biden, but this time, those words are actually not those of a politician. It's the first sentence in a new essay in foreign policy by Gita Gopinath, the first deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund. She makes the case that as countries look to de-risk and friendshore, to use the jargon of the moment, trade is fragmenting. Not only that, but it's fragmenting along the lines of who supports which superpower, the United States or China. We're back to blocks, in other words, and it could lead to a new Cold War. All of this comes amid a tricky time for the global economy, battered as it's been since the pandemic. Central banks have been trying to raise interest rates just enough to reduce inflation, but not so much so as to cause a recession. And success in that juggling act is what economists call a soft landing, something the IMF says is quite possible this year. The IMF also thinks, it turns out, that America's economy is doing very well, to use Gopinath's words, even if everyone doesn't feel it just yet. So is Russia's, despite the West's best attempts to sanction it. I decided to have on Gopinath to discuss all of this. Before her role, she was the IMF's chief economist, and previously she was a professor of economics at Harvard University. Gopinath's words often move markets. Reuters already pushed out a newswire when she told me that the Fed should be cautious about cutting rates. So I should point out, we had this discussion on Monday, February 12th. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us, share it with a friend, or try us on video live on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too, as you know. If you're not one, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Okay, let's dive in. Here's Gita Gopinath. Gita, welcome back to FP Live. Hi, Ravi. It's a pleasure to join you. So I want to start with your essay in foreign policy, which I urge everyone listening and watching to read. FP readers are quite familiar with the concepts of de-risking and friendshoring. I was struck by one detail in your essay. You said that around 3,000 trade-restricting measures were imposed in 2023, and that's three times the number in 2019. And your warning is that this could, these trends could cause a new Cold War. Explain that. Indeed, what we are seeing is a rise in trade restrictions around the world. There were 3,000 new trade restrictions in 2023, and there were 3,000 new trade restrictions in 2022. So this, like you said, is about three times what it used to be in 2019. And we're seeing this in the data in terms of the fragmenting of trade 
along geopolitical lines. Now, a question that often comes up is, well, are we seeing signs of deglobalization? I think it's important to make the distinction between deglobalization and fragmentation. Deglobalization is where global trade as a share of global GDP starts declining. That's not something that we are seeing. And by the way, that's not something that we saw during the Cold War either. But what we are seeing, just like we did during the Cold War, is an increase in fragmentation, which is countries trading more with partners that are within their own block as opposed to across blocks. We're also seeing that in terms of foreign direct investment flows between, for instance, the US and China. China is no longer an important destination for US foreign direct investment. If you look at announced FDI projects, they're going more to India, to Mexico, to the UAE. So I think it's important to recognize that fragmentation, which we've often been referred to as a risk, is increasingly a reality. And I think it helps to understand some of the impetus for these things and a range of potential factors. Some of it could be the pandemic when you know, I think countries really woke up to their supply chains and whether they were from too far away or national security concerns. Some of it could be US-China competition. Some of it could be linked to wars and conflict, in particular Russia's war in Ukraine. But I think what combines all of these trends, uh, Geeta, is that it doesn't seem like these trends can easily be reversed, right? There are good reasons why countries are rethinking some of their trade strategies. And uh, the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have both made countries stop and make sure that in the race for efficiency, you don't end up with having less resilient economy. So to make sure that your global supply chains are robust to changing political tension. So I think that is an important direction in which countries need to go. They need to diversify their supply chains. They need to make sure they're not reliant excessively on one country. Those are important steps to take. The risk of course is that we are in an environment where the discussion is going much more than that, which is you're now concerned about competition from other countries that affect your own companies. And so it's not just about friendshoring, but it's also about onshoring production. And it is a slippery slope. Now, I have a limited degree of optimism that we may be able to control this process and not end up with Cold War II. And the reason I have a limited amount of optimism is because it's going to be very costly this time around if we end up in Cold War II. Unlike the first Cold War, the original Cold War, this time around, economies are much more integrated. I mean, global trade as a share of GDP is around 60%. In 1950, that number was 16%. So I think rational minds will have to pause and think that if they go down a slippery slope and end up in something that looks like Cold War II, that would be very costly for all economies in the world. So that gives me limited optimism. I would say limited because the direction of travel does not look great, but I still have limited optimism that countries may try to contain the extent to which there is a decoupling. Mm. You know, your essay is sort of aimed at a global audience, and I think policymakers around the world will take it very seriously. But just to take sort of one constituent, the United States, I mean, how much is Washington to blame for the trends you're describing about fragmentation? And do you think America's embraced protectionism over the last few years? 
We've seen a rise in trade restrictions that have started out also importantly with the U.S.-China trade tensions that took place under the Trump administration 2018. Those restrictions came up. That has continued. We haven't really seen an improvement in trade relations. And so I think that is a factor. Now, I mean, just to be clear, some of those restrictions were also a response to the sense that trade rules are not being followed by all countries, that we have countries, including China, that are putting subsidies in place and have had longstanding subsidies in place. And it is the case that the rules of the game don't exactly provide clarity on how to deal with countries that put subsidies and encourage their own industry. So there is unfinished business that needs to be done in ensuring that there is a more level playing field in global trade. That work needs to be done. But again, one lesson we've learned from uh, history, and you know, sometimes people point out and they say, well, maybe we could have a little bit of protectionism and that may not be such a bad thing because after all, there are negative consequences of unfettered globalization. Nobody's going to deny that. The risk, of course, is that it's very difficult to have just a little bit of protectionism because once you go down that route, countries retaliate. And we see that in the data. So if you look at, for instance, countries putting in place subsidies, and if I say I look at the US or China or the European Union puts in a subsidy, you see pretty much within a 12-month period, there's a 73% probability that one of the other countries responds with a subsidy on the exact same product. So that's the, the kind of the retaliation and the counter-retaliation that ends up with moving you much further away from just a limited amount of protectionism. And that's something countries need to keep in mind. Mm. My sense is that there are political reasons why countries have resorted to protectionism. Some of it has to do with nationalism. Some of it has to do with other trends of turning inward. But in as much as there are also a set of economic reasons, and there are people uh, like you, uh, last year Adam Posen wrote a cover essay on exactly this topic for FP, arguing against uh, the current spate of sort of protectionist measures in the United States and elsewhere. Why is it, do you think, that the economic argument, which you've made in your essay and others have made, isn't sticking with leaders? The arguments why countries are looking more inward, or that they are friendshoring, or they are onshoring, or they rely on self-reliance, I think is because we are in a geopolitically charged world. So it's not just about the economics, it is about the political realities we live in. There are strategic sectors where countries are concerned about having too much exposure to one country or being reliant on international trade as opposed to their own internal production. We saw during the pandemic, countries that did not have their own home production of vaccines struggled to get vaccines. They had to wait quite a long time to get their vaccines. We saw from Russia's invasion of Ukraine that Europe, that was heavily dependent on Russia for its energy, had a massive energy crisis. So it is important to step back and think that hyper-efficiency could be a problem, and therefore it is right to build resilience. And I don't think anybody is going to question that. I think it is important to do it. My concern is that the rhetoric can get way past this, which is that in the interest of building resilience, you can end up with other kinds of confounding factors. You can end up with competition on the economic front. 
And also there are vested interests in trying to ensure that they protect their own companies. And so you could end up with lobbying efforts where you end up with much more restrictive trade policies than it's needed to build resilience. I think without a question, countries should diversify. It's important to do so more than was done in the past. But when you have policies that send very strong signals of not trading one particular country or not, it is hard to restrict it only to strategic sectors. It kind of spills over into others. And we're seeing that in the data. Mm. Um, one of our subscribers, Muthu Arigovinden, um, has a great question. And you've answered some of it already, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. And it goes like this. If not friendshoring, how do you expect countries to manage competition with an adversary where trade negotiations are held hostage for geopolitical gains? Any advice there? And the answer is diversification. If you have multiple sources that you can rely on for your sources of inputs, then that's the right trade-off. Right? I mean, it is a trade-off because you do want to care about efficiency to, uh, to an important extent, but you also don't want to be held hostage. And diversification provides that trade-off. It is important to do so. And in, in this current world where, unlike the Cold War of the 1950s to through 1980s, we have what I would call a non-aligned block of emerging and developing countries that have a much more substantial presence in global trade, just in terms of the population size, also in terms of their strength of their economies, way more important than they were back then. And these countries can serve as connector countries. They can be relied on also to make sure that you have different sources of supply for these goods and you can build resilience through that. So I think that these are some of the ways it can be done. Hmm. Well, I urge everyone listening and watching to read your essay. I'm going to move on to some other topics now. And I want to ask you about something that's really in the news in the foreign policy world today. So everyone's talking about Donald Trump's comments over the weekend, where he said he would encourage Russia to attack a NATO country if they weren't paying their fair share in the military alliance. And that, of course, has prompted countries in Europe to talk about going it alone in terms of defense. In light of that, does the IMF or even sort of the global economy have a plan in case America, you know, the IMF's largest contributor, were to be run by uh, a leader who has threatened to further divide the global order if he were to become president? Ravi, as a rule, we do not comment on political statements or intentions on how the political order might develop. We refrain from commenting on it. What we do, of course, analyze is the impact of events, even politically driven events, on the global economy. So for instance, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've done a substantial analysis on the consequences for individual countries and for the global economy as a whole. So I'm not going to comment on the specific question that you asked, but I think I will step back and just make the broader point that the global economy has, after about four years, finally gotten to a point where the risks are less tilted to the downside, right? We've had since 2020, the pandemic, 2022, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. These are all substantial events and where the global economy was constantly hit by downside shocks. I think we finally, maybe in a world where we could have a soft landing this year and the risks may be more balanced, as we just said in our January World Economic Outlook. Conflicts are problematic. Conflicts are just the last thing we want in this environment that we are in. We need to be able to build back 
economies, we need to build resilience, we need to build back fiscal buffers, debt levels are extremely high. So I think my just one word would be that all countries around the world should work to be able to ensure peace going forward. Mm, that's a diplomatic answer. I'm going to ask you one more question about the IMF specifically, and then move on to global growth in countries. And you know, I'm curious about how you see the IMF's role in managing some of the issues we've been discussing today uh, at a global level. Um, Adam Tooze, our columnist, wrote recently that as the direction of the global economy shifts from west to east, the IMF very much remains rooted in the west. And so he points out that nearly 60% of the voting shares in the IMF are held by countries that account for just 13.7% of the world's population. Uh, meanwhile, India and China, which have a combined 2.8 billion people, their combined voting share is just 9%. Does that give the IMF a legitimacy problem uh, in all of the things it's trying to deal with? In Adam's very nice essay, the other point that he also makes is that the IMF has adapted to the different challenges that the world economy faces in terms of our advice on countries' receptiveness to capital flows, in terms of how to deal with fiscal policy and so on. I think he gives a lot of praise for IMF staff's analysis. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because that is also a very important aspect of the IMF's legitimacy, which is in the kind of advice we give and the kinds of surveillance that we do and how our members find the interaction with the IMF, whether that's beneficial or not. And Ravi, I think it's, it's a really important sign that at the end of last year, our 190 member countries agreed on increasing quota shares by 50% for our, for our membership. Now, with just a rare exceptions, this was strongly supported by all our members, including China. And the reason they did that is because they all see the IMF as central to the global financial safety net. So I think that's the first thing we have to recognize. The other change that they approved was having a third chair for sub-Saharan Africa so that you have more representation. If you look at the amount of lending that the IMF has done since the past of the pandemic, that's around $354 billion that was lent to 97 countries, of which 57 countries were low-income countries. So I think there was very much the recognition that the IMF is at the center of the global financial safety net. Now, that said, I think there is absolutely important for the IMF to continue to evolve. And I do see that. I mean, sitting at in our board with our different members, I absolutely get the sense that everybody agrees that the IMF needs to adapt with the times and has to adjust to the global realities that we live in. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations on video and live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That's FPLIVE, one word. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? 
If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to some uh, global uh, economic data. And I want to ask you what your sense is of the state of global growth and inflation this year. Do you think that central banks have largely taken the right approach to bring us to a place where we don't have to worry too much about a hard landing? We are in a good place, given the very large concerns that there were last year about, uh, about inflation and what it would take to bring it down. Now, we now have a situation where inflation has come down quite sizably in many countries and labor markets still remain healthy in many parts of the world. So this would be the classic description of a soft landing. Now, the only thing I would mention that it is important to move cautiously on rate cuts because once you have an interest rate cut, the direction of travel becomes very clear and then everybody expects many more rate cuts and then you end up with a lot more financial easing than you intended to have. So you've got to, you have to be careful. And therefore our view is, you know, if I look at, the, for instance, the US, and if you look at the strength of the labor market, the strength of consumer demand, it would make sense to move cautiously. And, you know, if you, thinking about rate cuts, you want to wait maybe towards the second half of uh, this year as opposed to early, very early this year. Now, that said, I also think it's important to be data dependent. The risks to inflation are two-sided. It's not just all that you might have too high inflation. You could also end up with inflation being too low. And so it's important to be data dependent and watch the data as it comes in and react accordingly. I feel like one thread through our discussion so far is the importance of peace um, for the global economy to work well. I'm curious how you're looking at the attacks that have been taking place on shipping lanes in the Red Sea. This is, you know, attacks from Houthi rebels, but other players as well. What's your sense of the regional impact and the global uh, growth impact? I mean, to start with, of course, it's a terrible humanitarian crisis in the region and uh, we hope, like everybody else, that there is a peaceful resolution to it uh, soon. In terms of the economic impact, as of now, uh, we see that as quite limited because it still remains a limited conflict in the region. It has not expanded to other parts. So in terms of the spillovers to the world, I mean, the one concern was what would happen to energy prices and oil prices. And oil prices are now below what it was before the start of that conflict. So that's not uh, an issue, again, because it remains contained. Now, countries that are very close and immediately impacted by the war in the region, of course, this is a huge loss to them. Uh, we're seeing neighboring regions being affected by the loss of tourism. That is problematic. And of course, the other important uh, spillow that we're seeing is in terms of shipping through the Red Sea. What this is doing is affecting the trade between Asia 
and Europe more than the trade between Asia and the US, just given the direction in which the ships go. So we've seen a fairly substantial drop in trade that goes through the Suez Canal, and that's getting rerouted to the Cape of Good Hope. Shipping costs have gone up substantially. I mean, nothing like the pandemic, but they've gone up substantially. So all of these will have an effect. If this continues for a long period of time, then there could be much larger implications for inflation and growth for countries, especially in the region, and getting affected by this. But as of now, the global implications are quite limited. Mm. And other than pursuing peace, is there anything that leaders in the region can do uh, to protect their countries from some of the turmoil that they're seeing economically? For countries in the region, of course, the first thing that would be super helpful is a solution to this problem in the Middle East. For other countries, we are helping some of the countries in the region. For example, with Egypt, we have discussions ongoing program with them. They already have an ongoing program to see how much how we can help them. We are providing support. We think it is important for other countries around the world who can help economically countries in the region that are in need and are getting affected by this one or fault of theirs to help. This, is, this would be important to do. I want to talk about some countries uh, specifically now, and let's start with the United States there. We've discussed some of the White House's trade policies, but outside of that, it seems like the economy is doing better than many expected this time last year. What's your assessment of the state of the American economy right now, its strengths and weaknesses? The U.S. economy has been surprisingly resilient. If you look at just the numbers of 2023, we upgraded growth in the U.S. a couple of times because consumption came up much more strongly than we expected. The expectation was that with interest rates going up as much as they did, we would see much more slowing of consumption and investment, and that hasn't happened. Now, one of the reasons for it is that it's been offset by fiscal spending, which has provided a form of stimulus to the economy that has played a role. But overall, I mean, this is an economy that is doing very well. Consumption is strong. The labor market is slowing, but still in a very orderly manner. Uh, and it still remains tight if you look at indicators like unemployment rates, or wage growth. So this is uh, you know, a healthy economy. And one of the reasons why we upgraded global growth for 2023 was because of the US, because how well the US economy has done. And what is your sense for what accounts for the gap between the actual health of the economy, as you, you're just describing it, and how sort of the, the public tends to see economic progress and how it feels? I mean, is that just a lag? There are many factors that could be at play. Yes, there is a lag. We've seen an improvement in consumer sentiment in the US recently, you know, catching up with the data. But there's also another factor that weighs in the other direction, which is while we focus heavily on inflation, which is the change in the price level, for most people, what they care about is the price level itself. And if they've seen a substantial increase in prices, that, of course, has implications for their purchasing power. And in psychologically, the sense is that everything is a lot more expensive now than it used to be in the past. And we see that in the data as that tends to have a negative effect on sentiment. Now, we are seeing wages catching up. So we are seeing real wages growing, which is wages adjusted for inflation are increasing. And over time, that could hopefully lift sentiment further. 
Mm. And of course, when people get raises, uh, they, they always believe that they deserve it. And of course, no one deserves inflation. Let's go to China. Uh, data from China is so murky. What is the fund's best assessment of China's economic troubles right now and how that might impact their growth this year? China came through on its uh, intention to have growth of around 5% last year. So growth ended up as being 5.2%. Our projection is for growth to slow this year to 4.6%. And then if you look three to four years out, that it slows further to 3.5%. So in the near term, the concerns are about the property sector in China. There are significant risks associated with it and connected to that, the state of local government finances. I think these are the two big areas that we are paying close attention to. The property sector has been in distress for several years now. Uh, and while the government has you know, rightfully moved ahead and provided new forms of support to the sector, we think a lot more needs to be done easing the exit of unviable property developers, while at the same time making sure that those homes that households already prepaid for actually get completed and delivered back to them, because that can help raise sentiment. The other headwind that China is facing is what we started out with, which is world of geopolitical tensions and fragmentation. In that sense, their external environment doesn't look as promising as it's used to in the past. So these are some of the headwinds that China faces, which is why we have growth slowing in addition to, of course, declining population growth, weak productivity growth. Now, all of this said, it doesn't mean that China has to go down this path. Clearly, if it could undertake substantial reforms, more market-oriented reforms, providing social safety nets so that households are willing to spend more than they do right now, those kinds of actions can deliver higher growth than what we have in our baseline. But that requires important reforms in China. Mm. You know, I feel like China has just been such a driver of global growth for the last uh, four decades. What is your sense of a how a Chinese slowdown impacts the rest of the world? And some of the things that we've been discussing so far about fragmentation, does that help here or hurt? China's growth is important to many countries, especially countries in the region from, with whom they have substantial trading relations. We've done estimates that show that if China's growth is slower by about one percentage points, it reduces growth in the rest of the world by around 0.3 over a three-year period, right? It's about 0.3 percentage points. So these are substantial. China has spillovers through commodity prices. I mean, usually the demand for metals and other kinds of commodities is, comes quite heavily from China. That can slow down growth in China, can affect those prices and have implications for the world. So this is important. Uh, in terms of countries benefiting from friendshoring and diversification, yes, it is the case that we are seeing countries like, for instance, Mexico and Vietnam uh, who are uh, taking over more of China's trade with the U.S. So if you look at countries like, for instance, Mexico, Mexico has now become the U.S.'s number one trading partner. And the increase of Mexico and U.S.'s import share kind of goes along with a substantial increase in Mexico in China's export share. So you do see evidence of what looks like lengthening supply chains, through the connected countries that I talked about, so including 
Mexico and Vietnam. So yes, some countries are benefiting. But what is important to keep in mind is if we go down a slippery slope of tariffs that get retaliated and you have counter-retaliation, and frankly, I am concerned also about just moving towards plain vanilla protectionism, which is insuring and insourcing. In that world, everybody loses. Especially smaller countries, which can't do the same thing. I want to turn to Russia. Uh, the fund was criticized in some quarters last year for what was seen as a very optimistic assessment of Russia's economy. But it seems that the economy is, in fact, uh, transforming itself into a wartime economy. What's your latest assessment of uh, Russia's growth this year and how the war is impacting their economy? So Russia's growth has come in stronger than we expected. We revised it up by a percentage and a percentage and a half this year. So, you know, we are in squarely positive growth territory. It has done better than we expected. And by the way, uh, Rabi, as you mentioned, there was some criticism uh, for the IMF last year, but I think everybody has now come around to recognizing that these are the actual numbers. I mean, what has changed, of course, is Russia is a war economy large amounts of fiscal spending to go along with that. I mean, military expenditure is extremely high. Social transfers are extremely high. So you see that with the growing deficits. You see an economy that is overheating. You see the pressure on inflation. So that's where you see growth coming from. The question is, what happens over the medium term? And there, there is considerable uncertainty. But given the loss of human capital and given the restricted ability for Russia to import high-tech products, I mean, all of that has the potential to reduce a growth in Russia into the medium term. But again, I'd say it's highly uncertain and it depends upon how things develop over the next months. Is it your sense that sanctions just didn't work as well as everyone expected them to? Again, I think uh, this is an area that we don't come in directly on in terms of effectiveness and not of sanctions or what kinds of sanctions to implement. What is true is that Russia has been able to export large quantities of oil, even despite the price gap. So they have earned a large amount in terms of export earnings. But again, from the, the growth numbers as a whole, if you want to tell the story, it is the fact that this is a war economy and expenditures, fiscal expenditures are quite high. There's been a lot of talk about um, unfreezing Russian assets and then deploying them towards uh, reconstructing Ukraine. And one of the primary arguments against it is about the precedent it would set. Do you have a take on that either way? The decision of what to do with uh, Russia's frozen assets rests solely with the countries who are holding these assets and the negotiations among them. This is not something that the IMF gets involved in. We will evaluate the impact of any decisions that are taken on our member countries or on the global economy if and when that happens. I think the broad contours, of course, always is that you want to make sure that whatever you're doing has sufficient legal support for it so that you don't end up with risks down the line. I think that's important to keep in mind. But that said, we will wait and see the direction in which these discussions go. Let me turn to Argentina. They have a mercurial leader that everyone's been talking about. He gave a speech at Davos uh, where we were both at and it made a real splash. But, you know, there's a saying, um, and I'll paraphrase it, but the saying goes, you know, when someone owes you $100, you own them, but when they owe you a $1,000,000, they own you. 
you get the gist. I mean, Argentina owes the IMF many, many billions of dollars. How is the fund managing that relationship? And especially with this mercurial new leader that many of us are trying to understand in terms of what he says and what he does. The, you know, President Millet and current administration are taking bold steps to address the problems in Argentina. This administration inherited a very difficult situation, extremely high inflation and inflationary pressures that were just building up, reserves that were rock bottom. And to come back from that required very creative, strong action. And this government has started out with doing those, which is one is to have a strong fiscal anchor. I mean, it's very ambitious, which is to reduce the fiscal deficit basically down to zero, which is a five percentage point correction. That's a, that's a strong fiscal anchor. That is also helping with a build up uh, reserves and they built up close to $7 billion of reserves since the start uh, of their term, which is, again, substantial. But they're also getting rid of all of the, several of the distortions that are there in the economy that were there in terms of energy prices, in terms of, you know, transportation prices, numerous distortions and numerous regulations of restricting the growth in the economy. They are taking care of those. Now, at the same time, they are being mindful of the fact that this is a country which has a very high poverty rate of around 40%, which is why they are also focused on providing social transfers. This has been done for the child through the child benefit program, also through the food benefit program. More will likely be needed because this kind of an adjustment is painful. It slows the economy down a lot and it unfortunately affects the most vulnerable the most. And therefore, this is something that they will have to pay attention to. But it is a tough path to go down, but it's exactly where Argentina needs to go, which is to address the problem that they've had for many, many uh, years, which is a fiscal dominance and monetary financing of that fiscal uh, dominance. And that is uh, something that this government is addressing. Mm. I have to ask you about India, a country that you know very well. Everyone seems to be citing it as a bright spot in the economic landscape this year. Do you agree? India has now for a couple of years, two, three, four years, actually show, shown up consistently as one of the major economies with kind of the high growth major economies of the world uh, and has been consistently doing well for a few years now. That's very promising. I think this is a reflection of the important reforms that have taken place over the last many years, especially on two fronts. One is on building physical infrastructure. This is on roads, on ports and, and uh, airports and so on. That's one big area of development. The other big area is on digital infrastructure, which uh, is also critical in terms of generating new kinds of industries in India. So this has played an important role. The GST, you know, the unifying all the different taxes in the country, having coming up with a common goods and services tax. I think that is been a very important. It's beginning to pay off in terms of showing higher levels of revenues that are being collected. The financial system is in better shape than it's been in the past. So all of these are positive signs. That said, there is a lot more reform that's still needed in India. There are still issues with land acquisition. There are still labor market reforms that are needed. If you look at labor force participation of women, it's extremely low. So making sure that reforms are taking place strong enough reforms are taking place in multiple areas is going to be critical for India to 
not only grow internally, but also attract more investment into their economy. Um, it's hard to have any discussions these days without talking about AI. So let me ask you how the fund is thinking about it in terms of an opportunity, but also the potential of AI replacing human jobs and how you anticipate that impacting the economy. There are some very good opportunities from AI, but there are also some troubling risks that we need to worry about. We just put out a staff discussion note uh, recently, which looks at the potential impact of AI on labor markets. The exposure numbers are large. So for the global economy, uh, we have that about 40% of workers are likely exposed to AI. That number for the US is much higher at around 60%. Now exposure doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Exposure can mean that this is a technology that actually complements workers as opposed to substituting workers. And when we do that second step of calculation, that number is around half. So if you look at the US, we say about 60 percentage points, 30 percentage points is could be complementing the worker while 30 percentage bump has a potential to substitute it. So therefore, we could get lots of benefits from it. We've been waiting for the next productivity boom. There is the potential that AI could raise productivity by a lot. But we have to keep in mind that this could also polarize the labor market. It could have implications for spillovers to developing countries. For instance, if call centers are now brought back home because of the technology that exists in the US, you know that has negative spillovers to the rest of the world. But again, there are good opportunities from it. Maybe this is what can get productivity growth up. The numbers that I've seen, I mean, look actually a, a bit too good to be true. But that said, this is a very promising technology, but can be hugely transformational, as was maybe the Industrial Revolution. And therefore, we need to look back at history and just keep in mind that these transitions don't always happen smoothly and mm -hmm. make sure that we have the social safety nets in place for workers and also the training of workers to make sure that they can adapt to this new technology. Ita Gopinath, I thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ravi. And that was Geeta Gopinath, the first Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. As always, if you want to know who's coming up in future episodes of FP Live, head to farmpolicy.com. As you know, we conduct these interviews live and on video, but we often plan them out weeks ahead of time. By the time this episode drops, I will be at the Munich Security Conference, and I might even bring you a session from there. But there's lots else to look ahead to on FP Live in the coming weeks. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live is Tal Alroy. This is also a good moment for me to say we're looking for a new producer of this show. If you like the podcast and would like to work with us or know someone who does, get in touch. I'll leave the job description in the show notes. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, 
I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.